show that to you today. That's uh, been my prayer for this church and for every one of us, you know, that Jesus Christ would be lifted high in our lives in every deed, you know, in every service, in every outreach, in every contact that we make with others, that Jesus would be lifted high, that we would be promoters of Christ rather than promoters of self, and, and that we would work to make him famous. Matthew 4, 23 and 24, speaking of Jesus, says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing of every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. In Romans 9, 17, Paul quotes Exodus uh, chapter 9, verse 16, and he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, through the good and through the bad, our entire lives are meant to make Jesus Christ famous. And so whatever aspects of our lives are not effectively spreading his fame, anything that we do that doesn't glorify him or make him known to others is outside of his will. And this is a lesson that we're all learning, or we should be learning, as we go through this life, you know, this great journey that he set us all to. As followers of Christ, we've embarked upon a grand journey, making him known to all of mankind. This is our express calling. It's our very purpose for being, and there is no higher calling. In fact, there is no other calling. Unfortunately, some, even believers, some believers, never, I think, completely realize this truth. We, we talk about being called to all kinds of endeavors in this life, but instead of spending ourselves, sometimes serving at the pleasure of our king, we build castles and careers and, and 401ks. We build kingdoms that serve ourselves and our own interests. But if Jesus is not at the center of it all, if he isn't being glorified, lifted high, if he isn't being made famous by it, then it doesn't matter how happy we are. It doesn't matter how satisfied we are. In, in Luke 21, 33 through 36, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Talk about fame, right? Even his words will outlast heaven and earth. And then he addresses the danger of taking our focus off of him and putting it on ourselves. Verse 34, he says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. I think we have to constantly ask ourselves very honestly, is what I'm doing bringing glory and fame to Jesus Christ or am I building a kingdom for myself? And listen, I'm not telling you that God is calling you to poverty, okay? What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ must be at the center of everything that we do and the fruit, the outcome of our labor, our toil, our effort, our energy must be that the name of Jesus Christ is being lifted higher. His fame should be spreading because of you and because of me. If in that process we're blessed materially and otherwise, then bless God and pass the pork chops, right? Let's have a barbecue and celebrate the goodness of God by all means, but let's just be certain that he is the one that we're promoting and not ourselves, okay? That's really the point.
there's no question that God wants us to be happy. Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 13 says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We'll talk about that more in a minute. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay? God is, in fact, invested in our happiness. The good news is then we don't have to be so focused on making ourselves happy. Instead, we should focus on making God happy and let him take care of our happiness, right? So this life, this journey, is not about what we can amass or accomplish for ourselves. It's not about what we can, uh, it is what we can do about for him, not for ourselves, okay? And so we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about the journey, the, the pilgrimage of the believer in the hopes that we will be able to step back from the daily grind that's sometimes our life, set down the, the weight of burden and stress that we all carry, even for just a moment, and view our lives from a different perspective. Right? If, if someone were to write a book about your life and you were able to go back and read it after it was all over, would your life look different to you as you viewed it from that perspective? I believe it would, because I think that when we're in the thick of it, we can sort of lose our objectivity. We can lose that perspective that someone who's able to see the big picture might have, right? That's why it's often very beneficial when you're in the midst of making a really big decision to seek the advice of someone who, of course, has your best interest in mind, but beyond that, someone who isn't as emotionally invested in the moment, Right? A person who's somewhat removed from the urgency and intensity of the situation because those folks will often be able to see our situation from a different perspective and offer wisdom that is otherwise maybe clouded to us because of our proximity, our closeness to people and situations and circumstances. All right? And that's one of the benefits that we have, incidentally, of reading stories in the Bible. It's a perspective that we have that the people that we're reading about in the Bible didn't necessarily have while they were in the thick of it, right? We can sit in an armchair in our living room in air conditioning with a glass of iced tea and a bag of popcorn and read all about Moses and we can see the big picture. We can see what God was doing in his life, what his purposes were, even though Moses couldn't always see it at the time while he was living it. Right? And so, in this new sermon series we're starting today, we're going to parallel the life of Moses with our own. Because there is a great parallel, not only of Moses as a Christ figure, but Moses as a modern day believer on a great journey through these twists and turns of life. And all the while, following God into our ultimate destiny. And my hope is that by doing this, that we can gain a better perspective, not only on the life of Moses, but on our own lives. All right? And when we read the Bible, you know, we, we tend to read from event to event, or from miracle to miracle. And it's understandable because those big events in Scripture grab our attention, obviously. But there was a lot that went on in the lives of those in Scripture between the miracles, between those big happenings. And in fairness to the biblical authors, 
if you put yourself in their shoes and maybe you've just spent three years with Jesus or 40 years with Moses and you were writing about that, we'd all probably be more likely to put the supernatural healings and the and multiplying of loaves and fishes and raising the people from the dead in the book that we're writing, maybe even to the exclusion of the many days walking along a road or sitting around a campfire and just talking, right? Or just making a tent or just herding sheep, right? And of course we know what is in the Bible is what God wanted to be written. But if you just read from highlight to highlight, the Bible can seem like a movie where there was like never a dull moment. But in reality, the biblical characters often lived these exceptional lives that were at times exceptionally boring or mundane. We don't really read a lot about that because, first of all, who would write about that? And secondly, there, there simply wasn't time or space for the biblical authors to write down every single thing that they experienced. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, 24 and 25, he's referring to himself and the Gospel account that he's writing. John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Okay, so obviously there was a lot more that went on with these characters, certainly with Jesus in the Bible than we know. But I, I think that if we read carefully enough, we can pick up some really significant points of interest that apply directly to our lives today, even between the miracles and big events. So that's where we're headed. We're going to go on this journey with Moses and see what we can learn from his life as it parallels the life of every believer. And we'll make stops along the way, taking time to look at some of those moments that maybe aren't so commonly explored, okay? So let's turn in the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles, I think we'll have it on the screen as well. And we'll begin to look at Moses and this journey, and we'll start on chapter 1 in verse 8. This, is, uh, this was before Moses was born, okay? but it's relevant to the overall story of Moses' life and our lives today because we learn from chapter 1 just how involved God is on our journey long before we're even born. Okay, and keep in mind that before this, under the leadership of Joseph and the Pharaoh of, of his time, Israel experienced blessing and security and growth. But beginning in verse 8, we see that a new day had dawned on the people of Israel, the start of a new era that found the Israelites in desperate need of salvation. Okay, so verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pethom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So just as was the case with the New Testament believers, we see here that the more God's people were oppressed and persecuted, the more they multiplied and spread. And so it is today throughout the world that the church of Jesus Christ will advance no matter the pressure brought to bear upon it by the world. 
Okay, no matter how uh, bad it gets, no matter what we face in this life, you can be assured that God is greater and his church will advance. We see it in other nations happening today. Okay, let's continue. We'll finish verse 12 and go from there. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. How would you like for your name to be Pua, ladies? You know, she got teased in middle school. I mean, anyway, sorry. When you serve, he says to Shifra and Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. There's some debate here among scholars as to whether or not what the midwives did was deceptive or not. We have this need sometimes in our Christian culture to justify everything in the Bible as if no one ever did anything, none of the believers ever did anything, may be deceptive. But there's little room for debate in my mind because of verse 17, which says that the midwives did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The midwives could only have let the male children live if they'd been there. If they hadn't been there, they would have had no part in the Hebrews, Hebrew boys living or dying either way, right? And some have made the argument that, well, they let the Hebrew boys live by not showing up. Well, there's still a choice being made by the midwives here to actively disobey the king. So it clearly seems to be a story that they made up to answer the king of Egypt. And I have to say that I love this response that they gave to him. They not only directly disobey the order of the king, but they make sure and get a really good dig in on the Egyptian people who are oppressing them. I mean, it had to feel good, right or wrong, to just sort of stick it in the face of this evil king who was commanding them to kill their own people. And, and what an insult they level at the Egyptians. They said, look, the Hebrew women aren't like you. They aren't wimps like the Egyptian women. <laughs> We're a lot tougher than they are. And they may well, may well have been true. But verse 17 removes any doubt to me that the Hebrew midwives were present at the births of these male children and chose to knowingly disobey the Egyptian king in order to spare the lives of these innocent kids. And again, the passage often raises questions about obedience to secular authorities. And we are commanded to obey our secular authorities without question. And our responsibility in that and the truth is, we don't have time today really to go down that road, nor is it on point with the focus of this sermon. So I'm not going to go there other than to say this. There are countries in the world today who carry out forced abortions. And I don't believe for one second that God expects anyone to obey any government or leader who would tell us to murder our own children. Amen. And I think the Hebrew midwives knew that as well because they feared God more than they feared the Egyptian king, okay? Let's move on. Verse 20, and we'll see how God responds to the midwives' decision to disobey the king. So God dealt with the midwives. No, it says, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay? So God blesses the midwives for their stand for righteousness. And the king of Egypt abandons his plan to save the male Hebrew children being killed on the birthing stool. He just says, okay, that's not working, all right, by the Hebrews themselves. And so he enacts this new plan, and he makes a new decree. Now that the male children are being born, the king says, just toss them all into the river and let them drown. If the Hebrews won't do what I tell them, then I'll just have my own people throw them into the river, and I can get rid of all the male children that way, okay? So let's see what happens next. Let's go to ver uh, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Why did she hide him? Because, obviously, the Egyptians were pitching these kids into the Nile. So Moses has been saved from death at the birthing stool. Now he's being saved from being thrown into the Nile because his mother's hiding him. And here comes the third instance of salvation for him. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Okay? So here Moses' mother, Yochaved, made what's called a teva. That's the Hebrew word for ark. And interestingly enough, that's what's used in verse 3. It's only used one other place in scripture. It's described the ark that Noah built. Okay? It literally says she made for him an ark. All right? And so with this basket and bitumen and pitch, she makes this little ark for Moses and she sets him afloat on the river. And although he was obviously spared from sinking in the water at this point because of the basket and the pitch and the bitumen, on a river the size of the Nile, where babies are already being drowned, you're not going to last long as a three-month-old child in a glorified basket. Okay, so yet again, we see Moses in need of salvation. Verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So once again, we see Moses. He's saved, this time from the water itself. Okay, and now the story starts to get interesting. Verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And just as a side note, I've wondered for a long time, I wonder what his name was before it was Moses, right? right? I mean, she hid him for three months. I mean, generally, you name your kid when he's born. So there was at least three months there, and then maybe longer because we know she raised him before he was given. And we don't know when she gave him the name. But either way, for at least three months... He probably had a different name. That's just an interesting thing to think about because Moses, who's writing this account, up until the time he's given the name Moses, never refers to another name. He just says the child or the baby, right? So that's just something to keep you up at night. I don't, we don't know the answer. I just think it's interesting, like Bob or something. Yeah, I don't know. But this story at this point, sorry, is almost too good to be true. And it's really just like God to take a seemingly hopeless situation and turn it into something good. 
right? Not only is Moses' mother reunited with her son, who just moments before was in danger of death, but she's now being paid by the king's daughter to raise her own son. How many moms in here would love to be paid for raising your own kids? Yes. Yes. I'm sure some of you are thinking right now there isn't enough money in the entire world to compensate me for what my kids put me through, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is an almost unbelievable story of salvation. And if we pay attention to it closely enough, we see some truths about Moses' salvation that very much apply to every one of us, okay? So quickly, we're just going to highlight a few of those. First of all, early on in the story, we see that we are all in need of salvation. Just like the Israelites, we all need saving. We know that, don't we? And Moses, who really represents the Israelites and certainly the hope of the people of God, is in great need of salvation here. For just as he's about to be born, the powers of this world set out to destroy him and his kind. Looking in from the outside, this situation as a helpless infant seemed hopeless. In fact, it was hopeless until God intervened, because nothing is impossible for God. Luke 137, what seemed utterly destined for failure and destruction, namely the life of this helpless child, God brought salvation and turned a life doomed for failure and destruction into a life that led countless others to deliverance from their common enemy, okay? Prior to Christ in our own lives, our situation is hopeless, Without Jesus Christ in our lives, we're ultimately doomed for failure and destruction. 1 John 15, 1-6, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, to someone who's not a believer... This could easily seem like an extraordinarily arrogant statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away into the fire and burned. If this was all that we knew about Jesus, we could easily write him off as some demented megalomaniac, right? Just this world-class nutcase, completely consumed by his own ego. And as you probably know, there are people who view Jesus in this light. But once you've submitted your life to him and you've placed your faith and trust in him and you, you not only realize by what he said about himself and what scripture says about him from Genesis to Revelation that it's all true, but even beyond that, when that word is confirmed in you by the spirit of the living God that dwells within you, once you place your faith in him, then all of a sudden, these words, this statement by Jesus that we're nothing without him, it takes on an entirely different perspective because not too long after he makes this statement, he allows himself to be brutally tortured and murdered for you and me. It is in fact the most humbled, passionate, selfless and loving act that ever, anyone could ever submit themselves to for the sake of someone else. And in that sacrifice, we realize that Jesus' statements to his followers, to us, 
We're not born out of arrogance and ego, but rather are an impassioned plea, born out of compassion, because he desires that no one be cast into the fire. His desire is for the best and brightest future, including eternal glory with him for every one of us, right? And the only way, the only way to experience true freedom, true love, peace, true fulfillment, happiness, true forgiveness is to be reconciled to our creator by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ when we submit our lives to him. And there simply is no other way. There's no other way. Jesus certainly knew that and he was determined to make sure that we knew it. Okay? And so it is. We then know that without him our situation is hopeless. But with him, what? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 With him, the opposite of hopelessness is realized in our lives, just as it was in Moses' life, because Jesus Christ is our eternal hope. Now, all of that is, of course, somewhat basic information to those who understand the gospel. And in truth, this entire message today is a bit of a precursor, an introduction, if you will, to the rest of the series that we're going to explore over the next several weeks where we'll progress through the life of the believer paralleled by Moses. And we're going to address many of those faith issues that we all encounter, okay, as we embark on this journey of following Christ. But listen, however basic this message may be today, its truth is still truth, no matter how many times you've heard it. And its importance is unrivaled in the scope of this grand narrative This great story because everything that we are and everything that we will ever become is predicated upon this one truth. That there is but one way to eternal life and that is through Jesus Christ and that without him we are nothing. That is our message to the world. Okay, Moses was a helpless child who needed saving, as do we all. The second great parallel between Moses' journey and ours is that without God's intervention, none of us can be saved. Moses was an infant. He had no power to save himself. He couldn't earn the right to be saved. He couldn't do enough good deeds to merit saving. He he couldn't even represent himself before the Lord adequately enough to mount a reasonable argument for why he should be saved. And the truth is, neither can we do any of those things. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast, okay? Paul makes it clear that when it comes to salvation, we're completely relegated 
to the receiving end of that gift. We have no part other than faith-filled submission in the creation or bestowal of the gift of salvation. Without God's loving, grace-filled intervention in our lives, none of us can be saved. I'm so sick and tired of hearing about karma. You know, somehow we get what we deserve. I hear Christians talking about karma. Lord, help us. What goes around comes around. No, no, it doesn't. None of us is getting what we deserve. By our own sinful nature, we deserve death and hell. But by God's grace and mercy and love, He offers us eternal life. And if it wasn't for His intervention at the cross, where He interrupted business as usual and literally rocked the very foundations of heaven and earth by this shockingly outrageous sacrifice for a bunch of undeserving sinners, if it wasn't for His intervention, we would have no opportunity for salvation. How's that for karma? Before Christ, we were just like Moses. A helpless baby floating in the waters of the Nile. A river infested with a healthy population of predators that would have loved to make him a meal. Not to mention the Egyptians who were out to kill him and all of his fellow Hebrew boys. If it wasn't for God's intervention orchestrating the events that followed, which not only saved Moses from certain death, but caused him to flourish. Without God, Moses was crocodile bait. Likewise, the only way that we experience salvation is by God's intervention. Okay, so if by chance you've been trying to earn the gift of salvation by being really good or working really hard or being really nice to people or maybe you've committed yourself to a lifetime of carrying out acts of social justice and benevolence and those are all really good things, by the way, that we should all do. But without the intervention of the Spirit of God in your life, you're just a really friendly piece of crocodile bait. In the end, you will be devoured by the enemy unless you accept the invitation offered by Jesus Christ, the free gift that we cannot earn, the opportunity to allow him to be our master. Okay? We all need salvation. We know that. And without God's intervention, none of us can be saved. Okay? And finally, just as Moses learned much later in his life, so it is with us that God has been planning and providing for your salvation from long before you were even born. Right? That truth should bring you great comfort. Long before Moses led the people out of Egypt, long before he led the Israelites safely across the Red Sea, long before he shared God's covenant with the people, long before he, he led them through the wilderness, God knew that Moses was his man for the job. Moses didn't know that. He was a baby in a basket, a breath away from annihilation. But God had already been planning and providing for Moses' salvation and future. Well, guess what? God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Hebrews 13.8. He does the same for us as he did for Moses. God has a plan for your life. We say that all the time in church. But think about that in the context of Moses' life for a minute. Moses didn't accomplish all that he worked for because of his own goodness or worth in and of himself. Moses accomplished great and awesome deeds because God chose Moses to be his agent. And he's chosen you to be an agent for change in the lives of all those around you. Not because of your inherent goodness or your abilities or your skill or your talent or your hairdo. But because you are his man. You are his woman for the job. 
We're going to go deeper into this as we progress through this journey. But know this today. You can't earn yourself into a great destiny. You can't earn yourself into a great ministry, into great purpose in your life. All that you can do is simply listen for his voice and be obedient as he compels you to move on his behalf. Because whatever it is that you are to do for him, whatever the path is that you are to take, he planned out and provided for that long before you were ever born. And I think that maybe we spend a bit too much time worrying about this, the grand scheme of things and not enough time just simply listening to his voice, quieting ourselves before him, shutting out the noise of this world and the busyness of our hectic schedules and listening to the Spirit speak, the Spirit of God that dwells within us if you're a believer, okay? God has a plan already taken care of for you. You don't have to craft the plan. You don't have to map out your path. He's already done that for you. Again, long before you were born. All that we have to do is follow him wherever he leads us. That involves listening. It involves obedience. That involves courage, certainly. It involves faith. And those are all coming in sermons to follow as we go on this journey together. But for today, let's just ground ourselves in the knowledge that God has our past, our present, and our future all figured out. It's all provided for and it involves each one of us accomplishing great feats of faith and victory and purpose as we simply follow him one step at a time. One of the most oft quoted and beloved scriptures says so well, a promise from the Father to his people, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. My friends, as fondly as I think of you and how I do, as much as I love you and want to help each one of you succeed in this life, my yearning for you doesn't compare to the completely encompassing love and concern and purpose that he has for you and has had for you since before your time on this earth began. You have to believe that. You have to believe that. But sometimes I think we still question it, don't we? We wonder if he has a plan for our lives. Have I missed it? Did I, did I miss the opportunity? Have I somehow gotten so far away from God now? That there's no more a plan for me. Just how involved is God in my life, really? How concerned for me is he? How intimately does he actually know me and love me? I hear those questions. Listen to this answer. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We often stop there when we read this psalm. The best part is in the next two or three verses. Listen. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of this earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you understand that? He's written it all out before you were born. The plan for your life. The purposes you have. All the things that he wants you to do for him. It's all been mapped out for you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. If there is any question as to whether or not he has had you on his mind and in his heart since before you existed, let this word put that thought forever to rest. And if those old thoughts of worthlessness start to creep into your mind, if you think, man, maybe somehow I've missed the plan, it's too late. Why don't you just read Psalm 139 over and over again if you have to. Just as Moses' journey led him down the path that God designed specifically for him, God has you too well in hand. Do you believe that? It's true. And you can rest knowing that he has saved you for this journey. And what a journey it is. What a great adventure we're all on. Let's pray. Jeannie, would you come?